to be with you all this evening. And <clears throat> thanks for the many questions. <laughs> I'm clearly not going to get to all of them. <clears throat> uh, but they were all really great. Each question, each one of them could be an hour Dharma talk. But I'm going to try to <laughs> compress the answers a bit. So the first one <clears throat> it was about dukkha. And where is dukkha found in the breath? So that's a question that opens up a lot. Uh, namely, a deeper understanding of what dukkha means. Because usually and even traditionally, dukkha is translated as suffering. You know, and in the Four Noble Truths, the truth, first noble truth is the truth of dukkha, <clears throat> and it's often translated truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, end of suffering, and the path. But suffering, as an English translation of that word, <clears throat> uh, sometimes is confusing, as is indicated by this question. You know, how is, how is the breath dukkha? We generally don't experience it as suffering. <clears throat> So the Buddha made a very <clears throat> global statement about dukkha. He said, all conditioned things are dukkha. So what are all conditioned things? Everything. Everything except Nibbana, the unconditioned. So all of our experience, the Buddha is <clears throat> encompassing with this term. So if we think of it as simply as suffering, it doesn't quite make sense because we have a lot of happy, joyous, pleasant experiences in our lives and we generally don't feel them to be suffering. So what does the Buddha mean when he says all conditioned things are dukkha? Suffering is one aspect of it, you know, and clearly when we're in pain, either physical pain or emotional pain, or in, see the suffering of others, we can really see that as suffering. <clears throat> but dukkha also means unreliability, that things are not ultimately reliable or ultimately satisfying precisely because they don't last. And so in this respect, <clears throat> the insight into impermanence and the insight into dukkha are very intertwined with respect to this aspect of dukkha. Things are unreliable. They're ultimately not satisfying because they're continually changing. Just as a... <clears throat> little sidebar, I came across another expression in the suttas uh, that really stood out at me. It was another way of expressing the truth of change. And it was an unusual phrase in English, uh, and that's why it kind of stood out, where the Buddha talked about things have the nature to change <clears throat> to become otherwise. You know, I love that, things always becoming otherwise. And for me, it kind of uh, <clears throat> sort of highlighted or it made more vivid the experience of change. You know, because things change, everybody knows that, and we don't even give it a second thought. But somehow things continually becoming otherwise, to me, really highlights the fact of the basic instability of our experience due to its changing nature. So, going back to the original question, where is dukkha found in the breath? If we think of it in this second larger meaning, right, not simply as suffering, but as unreliable, or always becoming otherwise, we can see the dukkha in the breath in several ways. 
because it's always changing, becoming otherwise. <clears throat> yeah, for a good part of our lives, maybe breathing is very easeful. But there are situations where people have a breath that's not easeful at all, that's very labored, or there's some um, disease or illness that's causing actual suffering in the breath. So there's dukkha there. And this is not going to come as any surprise to you. It's ultimately not satisfying because at a certain point we're going to stop breathing. So if we're, if we're hoping to take refuge in the breath, you know, as a place for ultimate peace or ultimate refuge, it's not going to work because it is a conditioned phenomena, comes with certain causes. You know, our bodies get older, we get sick, they're going to die, the breath stops. So this is, this is one of the key meanings of dukkha. Because the Buddha was pointing to a realization of that which is an ultimate refuge, which is not subject to change, which is ultimately reliable. And, you know, when you read the discourses of the suttas, uh, in many different places, the Buddha gives a lot of synonyms for Nibbana, you know, for Nibbana. And they all imply that's the experience that can be counted on, that is not becoming otherwise, that is reliable, that is the ultimate refuge of peace. So I hope this gives you some sense of how we can understand the Buddha's statement that all conditioned phenomena are dukkha. It's not only just suffering, it's that unreliability because of the nature of everything to change, to become otherwise. Okay, the next question was about physical pain. Have you had any experience of that in your time here? Probably. So the question, you have said there was a year of your practice where your body felt like twisted metal. Do you have any advice for how to work with intense unpleasantness in the body, which has been going on for some time? Again, this is given the nature of the body and the nature of it to continually become otherwise. It's inevitable for all of us that at different times we're going to experience painful sensations. It's just part of being alive. There's nobody who escapes that. There's nobody who has only pleasant sensations throughout their lives. So I had to work with it, and as as the question indicated, I've worked with a lot over the years at different times. And this one particular time, it was... protracted period, you know, where actually my body just, as as I described it to myself, felt like twisted steel, you know. And it took me a long time to figure out how to work with it skillfully. Because, as you will probably uh, recognize, especially when there's intense discomfort in the body, What's our usual response to it? We don't like it. <laughs> you know, we don't like it. We want to get rid of it. There's some kind of aversion. And this, it almost feels like the normal response to painful feelings. Well, it may be normal, but it's not helpful. Because the aversion to the pain the wanting to get rid of it actually increases it. Because 
the contraction of that aversion, the tightness, the pushing away, that just makes everything tighter. And so, in a way, it's counterintuitive, but the way of being with pain, and there are several different subtleties to this, but generally speaking, <clears throat> it's to remind ourselves, and this, this takes practice, to relax behind it, to open to it, rather than contract and push it away. <clears throat> so that relaxation, opening, allowing, making space for. Right? And one way of doing that we can either do it in a very kind of focused way, a narrow way, if there's a particular area of pain in the body. But perhaps an easier way is to really start becoming mindful of the whole body, a whole body awareness. And a note that I've used in, in other contexts, but it could be useful here, and this is a line from the Satipatthana Sutta, the Discourse on Mindfulness, where the Buddha says, be mindful, and then in the equivalent of quotation marks, be mindful, there is a body. And then he goes on, to the extent necessary for clear knowing and continuous mindfulness. So that phrase, there is a body, I started using that a lot in my practice. In sitting, in walking, there is a body. And this, <coughs> this is not a metaphysical statement. So it's not to get involved, Phyllis, is there a body? Isn't there a body? It's not that. <laughs> it's just, it's much simpler. It's just, it's just a way of creating a frame. A large frame, there is a body. So we settle into that whole body awareness and I found that when I do that, it's much easier to just settle back and be open to whatever sensations, whether pleasant or unpleasant, that are arising within the frame. But it's that frame, there is a body, which gives us a place of stability to rest in so that we can feel the unpleasantness without reactivity. Because sometimes if we just dive right into it, we get into a kind of tussle with it. Whereas if we give ourselves a larger context, a larger framework, oh, there's a body, and then within that, oh, unpleasant sensations, and just arising and passing and changing as they do, it makes it much easier to settle into that space that I talked about we were just allowing, we're openness, we're non-reactive to it. As we do this, there's a very interesting process that we begin to understand. And that is, in that space of openness and allowing, it's, it's as if it creates the space for whatever tensions we've accumulated or energetic knots or whatever it is that's causing the pain to actually unwind. So there's a healing process that is going on when we can be softly, gently aware of unpleasant sensations. It's like we're giving them the space to unwind, to disentangle. So just one example of that. <clears throat> you're, you're probably past this stage. But I noticed very often, especially some time ago in my practice, when I'd be busy in the world and then be doing a retreat, I would notice that <clears throat> the first few days of the retreat, it's like my shoulders were killing me just so much discomfort and pain in my shoulders. Why? Because <laughs> I had been carrying this tension that I didn't even know I was carrying. 
You know, just in the course of our busy lives, we accumulate a lot of tension. And it becomes normal to us. We're not even really aware that we're carrying it. And so at the beginning of a retreat, why are my shoulders hurting so much? And then I realized, yes, because they're up to my ears. <laughs> That's exaggerating a little bit. But I noticed that, oh, it didn't take long, but over a few days of just that allowing space, the shoulders started relaxing, the pain started unwinding, so it was a release. So do you understand that, that creating the space of allowing allows for the release of a lot of the tension and pain that's there. <laughs> this is another question related to dukkha. Unsatisfactoriness. How can observing the changing sensations in my feet while walking convince me that nothing can bring me lasting satisfaction? <laughs> I've never been looking for satisfaction in my feet. <laughs> uh, this is probably a question that has, has arisen for many of you. <laughs> what is this all about? Why am I watching my feet? <laughs> well, first to say... Um, we might be looking for satisfaction in our feet when they start hurting. <laughs> okay, but normally maybe they're not hurting, and so we're not really looking for much. But that's that's a kind of obvious thing. There's a more, uh, I would say, really a more profound way uh, of what this question is pointing to. And that is a really important level shift in the meditation practice is when the mind goes from experiencing the concept of things to the direct experience of them. And this at first may seem obvious, but there are a lot of subtle manifestations of it. So we'll take the walking meditation, <clears throat> but it can, can apply to sitting or to <clears throat> any, any activity at all. It's very possible to be walking and to be mindful of the movement but still with a subtle overlay, subtle overlay of an image of foot or leg as we're moving. And it's almost as if we're feeling the sensations of the movement through the overlay. And it can be really subtle. Uh, But it would be interesting for you to explore and just to see whether you notice that happening or not. Why is it so important to see the difference between the concept level and the level of direct experience? When we are on the when we're experiencing the world through concepts and the concepts don't have only to do with the body. We're living in the world, mostly in the world of concepts. You know, when you look outside and you see a tree or a house or a car, those are all concepts. The eye does not see tree. The eye sees color and form and light and shadow and and then the mind perceives that then creates a concept in the mind tree or house or whatever it is. More intimately, we do that with this mind and body. When we are experiencing the body through this filter of the concept, Mm 
even of body. Body is a concept, foot is a concept, leg is a concept. So when you're walking, you are not feeling your foot because there is no sensation called foot. What you're experiencing <coughs> is pressure or hardness or softness or lightness or warmth or coolness. Those are the sensations that are being felt. That's actually what's being felt. Foot and leg is a thought or an image that you're then overlaying on the, on the bare sensations. Now here's the critical point. Concepts don't change. The word, we use the same word. Had a foot yesterday, foot today, foot tomorrow. She was there yesterday, she is there today, tomorrow. So even though we may know intellectually that things are always changing, to the degree that we're living and experiencing things through the world of concepts, which is, I would say, almost all the time, except for experienced meditators, those concepts, which we're taking to be the reality, are camouflaging the truth of change, the experience of change. Whereas when we're feeling the actual sensations, they are changing all the time. So when we have dropped down into the direct experience, whether it's in movement or anything, you know, in sitting, just the experience of the body, but the actual felt sensations of the body, that's when our mind is really diving deep, diving deep, deeply <laughs> into the experience of the truth of change. There's another implication here that has uh, <clears throat> very strong ramifications for understanding selflessness. You know, and as you probably know, it's not hard to understand even conceptually the truth of change or dukkha, but selflessness is really counterintuitive, and it's, it's that aspect of the teachings that people often have the most uh, question about, or, you know, well, what does that mean? This going from the world to the level of concept to direct experience directly addresses this understanding of selflessness. Because when we're viewing, we'll take the walking since that was brought up. And again, it could be applied to anything. But when we're walking, with that overlay of concept, oh, foot or leg. It's an easy move from foot or leg to my foot and my leg. I'm the one <laughs> who owns it, you know, or to whom it belongs. And it it would be completely natural and normal to be talking in, in these terms. Oh, yeah, my arm hurts or my foot hurts or whatever. It's very easy to add on the I and mine to the concept because the concept is not changing. But I don't think anybody would say my pressure you know, or my lightness or I am pressure. <laughs> when we're on the level of the actual elements, 
And in the experience of their changing nature, the understanding of and the realization of selflessness becomes so much more apparent. It's just, you know, a phrase that I really have loved since the beginning of my practice, describing this whole process, empty phenomena rolling on, empty of self. It's just different elements of mind and body, all conditioned, meaning they're arising when the conditions are there, present, conditions change, the experience changes. So our whole, what we call our lives, and it's fine to use conventional language, so I'm not suggesting we drop all language of self and other and I, and the language is fine. But we don't want to get trapped in the language into reifying it as being reflective of the actual experience. Because when we do, when that strong sense of self arises because we're seeing things through concept, that's where a lot of attachment comes. You know, we're, we're attached to my body. You know, we're identified with my body. But as I said, we, we wouldn't be attached to pressure, tightness, you know, whatever the particular elements are, it's so clearly impersonal. Um, and so when we're on that level of direct experience, that's when we begin to see the momentary changing nature of everything that's arising. And there's, it really undercuts the powerful tendency to identify with what's going on as being self. Is this making sense? It does to me. (laughs) I'm hoping I'm conveying it in a certain way that it does to you as well. Okay. Identification with sticky thoughts. I'm wondering what you have to say about working with the stickiest thoughts that show up over and over that freak me out. (laughs) That was not the language in the question, actually, but I cleaned it up a little bit. (laughs) I'm I'm still in a world of believing them, identifying them when they arise. Techniques on cultivating the non-belief and non-identification through them with them. Okay, so this is a really uh, big question in meditation practice. How to cut through our identification with the thinking process because um, that identification is the cause of so much suffering in our lives. And this is, this is the dukkha of suffering, of pain. And the habit is just so deeply conditioned in us. You know, it's... Even as we begin to get a sense of, yeah, the physical elements <laughs> and constant change, they begin to see the impersonality of it. You know, not I, not mine. But we so easily fall into I'm thinking. I'm the one that thinks. These are my thoughts. And one of the most freeing aspects, especially, you know, in a long retreat where you just have a chance to see this over and over again, over extended periods of time, we slowly begin to see thoughts really in the same way that we might be with sensations in the body, that they are impersonal. And there's a phrase that uh, 
I first heard my teacher Meninjaji use it, but then I've, I've heard other people use this phrase as well. And it really expresses uh, a better understanding of thought, where it says, the thought is the thinker. Right? The thought is thinking itself. It's not that the thought belongs to anyone. It's not my thought. The thought arises out of a whole host of conditions, you know, of background and upbringing and education. There's a lot of reasons why different thoughts come. But they're all impersonal. They don't belong to me. I am not the thought even though we generally tend to think we are. So how can we begin to break this identification? Uh, And, you know, you've probably experimented with a lot of ways yourself. Just mention a few things that have been helpful for me. One is um, just basic to the meditation instructions. It's just using a mental note, you know, noting uh, thinking or planning or judging or fantasizing, whatever it is. Because in the moment of making the note, and the note has to be really soft and gentle, because if you're noting thinking, thinking, thinking again and again, thinking, <laughs> that's not mindfulness. That's just <laughs> increasing aversion. So the, the note has to be really soft, gentle, accepting, allowing. It's just acknowledging. Oh, thinking. Even judging, but with a soft tone of voice. Because in the moment of making that mental note, in that moment, we are not identified with the thought. That's the power of Mindfulness. When we're mindful that we're thinking and the note is helping us be mindful of it, so the note is a support for mindfulness, in that moment of mindfulness of the thought, we are not identified with it. And we see more clearly, and again, over and over again, you know, it would be interesting if somehow we could count the number of thoughts we have in a three-month retreat. <laughs> it would be a big number. <laughs> but the noting, we, we just see over and over again, okay, we're not identified, and we see them coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. And they start to lose their, their hold on us. We're not so seduced by them. And as you've probably heard in the instructions, it can be particularly helpful if you have certain patterns of thought to give a very specific note. The ones that typically seduce you again and again into becoming lost in them. Planning, you know, or memory, or whatever it is, whatever your top ten are, to give a specific note. Okay, that's, this is just the most basic way of being with it. Another way which I find even more interesting, when there are, particularly when there are a lot of thoughts going through the mind, just to ask the question, what is a thought? Not what is the thought saying, what is a thought as a phenomenon? I think very few people ever ask this question. You know, we are totally seduced and carried away by the storyline of the thoughts, the content of the thoughts. And it's very rare that anybody even thinks of looking directly, investigating, well, what is a thought? I find this completely fascinating because right in the middle of having them, so the thoughts are there, and if we remember, oh, what, what is that? And, and the question 
inspires us to really look directly at it as it's happening, we see that the thought is little more than nothing. It's just this like little ephemeral energetic, you know, something. It's hardly there. And when when we look directly at it, it becomes so obvious. It's just, what is it? <laughs> As I say, it's little more than nothing. And yet, when we're unaware of the nature of thought, they completely dominate our lives. You know, our thoughts run us ragged. Go here, go there, go there, do this, do that. Get married, get divorced. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) And our whole lives, it's like we're slaves to these thoughts. So that's on the one hand. And on the other hand, when we look carefully at the nature of thought, we say... There's hardly anything there. So to see this again and again and again creates, creates a, an amazing place of greater freedom and greater peace in our lives. Because it's not that the thoughts stop coming, but our relationship to them over time changes dramatically. Now, it's not to say we never get caught, even after many years of practice, you know, we, we get caught again and again, but much less, instead of living in the world of our story, we begin to see, no, these are, these are just thoughts or images arising and passing in the mind. They, they really can have very little, if any, impact if we're not, if we're not choosing to invest in them. There are some thoughts we'll, which we will want to invest in. So I'm not saying that, that thoughts are bad or we shouldn't be having them. Or Obviously, they're a big part of how we function in the world. But because we don't understand their essentially empty nature, we have a much harder time discerning clearly, oh yeah, this, this thought is helpful let me act on it. This thought is not helpful. Let it just go. So, I would really suggest you uh, just investigate this realm of experience because it is so uh, predominant in our lives and has such, uh, such overwhelming impact on our lives. Um, and there is the possibility, you know, through our own investigation, through our own awareness of, of a clear seeing of them, to really free up um, a lot of space within ourselves. And so you, you can definitely use the thought process as the vehicle for investigation and for clarity and for greater freedom. Okay, one more thing about thoughts. This is just a, I don't know, it's a little uh, meditative suggestion. So we all have the experience of, you know, we're sitting and with the breath, the body, whatever, thoughts come and often we get carried away by them for either a short or a longer period of time. So that's, that's really common. But at a certain point with every thought, we wake up from being lost. Right? That, that, for as many times as we're lost, that many times do we awaken from being lost. But the tendency of most meditators in the moment of waking up from being lost is judgment about having been lost. 
you know, oh, I was lost again. How many times? How long is this going to go on? And we get into another whole <laughs> lost in thought train. <laughs> so rather than that, if you can remember, in that moment when you awaken from being lost, now you're in it, in it, in it, in it, and then a certain moment, oh, thinking. In that very moment, delight in the wakefulness rather than the judgment of having been lost. It'll make you much happier (laughs) because, as I said, as many times as you've been lost, that many times you will awaken. So why not cultivate the delight in the wakefulness rather than in the judgment of having been lost? So not only does it affect our mood, you know, and kind of it's energizing for us, it also highlights and clarifies in a very immediate way the difference between delusion and wisdom, between ignorance and awareness. Right in that moment, being lost, 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 that's just ignorance. We're lost in the thought, we we are not mindful that we're thinking. So we're just completely in the story. That is delusion. In the moment of waking up, that's wakefulness. That's awareness. That's wisdom. So right there in that moment, we just get such a vivid understanding of the difference between the two. And because it's the difference becomes much clearer, then it's easier to access that wisdom space of mind because we see clearly what it is. I have found this to be of huge interest, not only in formal meditation, but just going through the day. I don't know, one of the things that just... um, I would say it delights me about the practice. I can just be going for a walk. You know, I'm going for a walk around the loop and being you know, as mindful as I can, but not, not in kind of a forced or intensive way. I'm just walking, going for a walk, but trying to be mindful. And just to notice, even as I'm feeling my body moving, how many times the mind will slip into a thought train, even if it's just for... 20 seconds or a minute. It can be a very light, unobtrusive thought that normally I would just not even pay attention to because it's not problematic. But I've been practicing what I've just been talking about. It's fascinating to see how in the course of just our daily life and our daily activities, we're dropping into delusion and out of it. Into delusion and out of it many more times than we realize. (laughs) I guess this is a piece of bad news. We're more deluded than we think we are. (laughs) In in a strange way, when I saw that, it delighted me. (laughs) Because it came as a surprise. You know, and this is fairly recent. You know, it's just just in the course of my practice and paying attention to this dropping in and out of being lost, just in moving about. It it was a bit shocking <laughs> to see how often the mind just dropped into the, the story of whatever it was. And again, it doesn't have to be dramatic. It doesn't even have to be problematic. It can be just a totally innocuous thought. But we're lost. We're not aware. We're in delusion. Uh, So for me, this has just become a really interesting place to practice. Okay. You know, some I need my glasses for. Can you give any words of encouragement or advice 
for practicing through dark times and how to approach practice at such a time. Okay, so first it's to understand that both in meditation and in our lives, this is going to happen. You know, we all go through hard, difficult, challenging times. So this is just part of life. So the first thing is to realize it's not a mistake and it's not some aberration. It doesn't mean I'm a bad person or a bad meditator or anything like that. It's just this is part of life. That sometimes things are going smoothly and easily and sometimes really challenging things come up, whether physically, emotionally, psychologically, or situation in the world. Uh, Sometimes things are really hard. So how can we practice at those times? So everything I'm about to say can can be understood within the frame of how can I find a place of openness and allowing in those times, so we don't contract and we don't drown in the difficulty. So then the question is how to do that. Something that is really helpful and sometimes uh, challenging is to get very precise about whatever feelings or emotions we're having in the midst of the difficult time, in the challenging time. And it can be a wide range. You know, there could be fear or despair or unhappiness or anxiety or, I don't know, there's a long list of, you know, what in Buddhism are called the afflictive emotions. That is, those emotions that cause suffering for us. But in order to come to a place of openness, you know, where we are allowing ourselves to feel them without aversion, without trying to push them away, very often we need to be aware precisely of what it is. Now, I'll just say as a little footnote to that statement, Sometimes, if the mindfulness is really strong and the emotion is not overwhelming, sometimes the precision about what it is is not needed. It's just, we could just use a general term of, I don't know, difficult emotion or difficult feeling, just a general term. And occasionally that would be enough to disidentify. But more often than not, you know, when the situation is really challenging for us, then to really be specific. So I'll give you an exam- a few examples of this. At one time in my practice, I, for whatever reason, I was just having this really strong, strong emotion uh, of sadness. It just... Just sadness. It just felt so challenging. And I was noting sadness, 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 sadness. But no, it, 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 the noting didn't seem to help at all, and I didn't, there didn't seem to be any movement at all. So then I just got interested, and I, I looked a little more carefully. Okay, what actually am I feeling? And it wasn't sadness. It was unhappiness. And it was interesting to me because one might say maybe they're closely related, but they're really quite different emotions. As soon as I could name it precise unhappiness, it's like my mind came into alignment with what was present. And it was the alignment that made the acceptance possible. As long as I was misnaming it, 
as I sadness, sadness. I wasn't able to accept it because I was not aligned with what was actually present. And it was amazing. As soon as I noted it correctly, oh, this is unhappiness. Then, first there was, there was a kind of energetic uplift through the clarity of the recognition. Oh, oh yeah, this is what's happening. And my entanglement with it got much less because then I could actually be mindful of it. So one word of caution with this because you've all been sitting now a long time and I could just imagine in next time you're sitting you have some emotion and you spend an hour and a half, is it this, is it this, is it this? You know, you go through this whole list. Do not drive yourself crazy with this. <laughs> what I'm suggesting, this investigation, uh, really work with it at those times when for whatever reason you feel stuck in some emotion. Right? Where, where you just feel so entangled with it. That's the time when just settling back and you know, trying out a few different possibilities to see if you can land in the right one. And if not, let it go and just continue with your practice. But there will be times when just that move actually frees up the whole thing. Another uh, pair that often get confused is anxiety and fear. You know, but, and again, they could be close, but they are different emotions. And if we're misnaming or misperceiving, we may not get in alignment, as I say, with what's there and find it more difficult to be accepting of it. Okay, so the clear recognition is really helpful. In the, as the question, in the dark times, to really see, okay, what, what actually is going on? And just another thought related to what I said a little earlier. Again, this is a shift from a concept, I'm going through such a hard time, to just being mindful of the actual emotion that's present. Right? Because in the first, we're just reinforcing the sense of self and I and then drowning in the difficulty. When we go to the direct experience of the emotion, then it's possible to see it without identifying with it. To see, oh yeah, this emotion is arising out of whatever conditions but it's also a passing phenomenon. It's like, it's like a storm cloud passing through the sky. You know? And so that allowing, that openness, allows for the movement. It allows for the release. Something that is of critical importance in working with challenging emotions, kind of the, the dark times, um, and this is kind of a uh, addendum to what I just said about clear recognition. Recognition and mindfulness are two different things because we can recognize what's there and even have the recognition correct. We're correctly perceiving what's present. But that recognition by itself is not mindfulness. It can support mindfulness, but it's possible to recognize what's there and to be with it through a filter of desire or aversion. So we we could recognize... Uh, for example, pleasant feeling. And we recognize Vedna, pleasant Vedna, whether it's the body, the mind, so we recognize that. 
But if we are perceiving it through a filter of wanting, of desire, of clinging, that's not mindfulness. And that keeps us entangled. Or, you know, if, if it's unpleasant, aversive, if it's, if it's an afflictive emotion, we might recognize accurately what's there, but if we're seeing it through the filter of, I don't like this, I want to get rid of it, I want it to go away, that's not mindfulness. And in fact, that aversion is just going to lock it in. So we want to use the skill of accurate recognition. Okay, what is it that's actually here? But then, and this is, this is a teaching from Utejaniya, many of you might know a really wonderful Burmese monk. One, one of his suggestions in practice is just to frequently ask the question, well, what's the attitude in my mind about what I'm experiencing? So it's not only the recognition, but we're also looking at how we're relating to it. And that is absolutely key. And that really begins to hone your understanding and appreciation of what mindfulness means, as opposed to simply being in the present or even accurately recognizing what's there. Mindfulness is something in addition. And that is being with whatever it is without the greed, without the clinging, without the aversion, without the identification. So all these pieces have to come together, and over time they become natural. You know, maybe, you know, as people are beginning their practice, they really have to think of each of these things and work with them. But at a certain point, you know, this becomes the habit of your practice. But I think it's worth highlighting. Um, and sometimes it's super subtle. Just a, another example. One time I was just sitting, normal, ordinary sitting. I was just feeling my breath. So nothing, nothing special was going on at all. And then I remembered Utejaniya's suggestion, you know, with that question. So I just, you know, that, that question arose in my mind. Well, what's the attitude in my mind? And it was just for the breath. You know, so it wasn't even anything very uh, problematic or dramatic. It was so interesting. So I'm just feeling the breath. And this question, oh, what's the attitude? And simply by asking that question, not, not even looking for an answer, just by asking the question, I could feel my mind drop back from a wanting that I didn't even know was there. And it was very subtle. It was like, I mean, you might call it an energetic leaning into the next moment. Like, uh, so I'm with the breath for the next breath. Or maybe it was some undetected wanting to get more concentrated. Something. There was something extra to simply feeling the breath as it was. And that question effected that Released. What's the attitude? And it was amazing, and it highlighted, again, some of the subtle nuances or refinements of what mindfulness means. Right? So we can think we're being mindful, and still there can be that subtle, oh, I want this, I want more of this, I want less of this. Um, so I think it's worth just playing with it. Okay, there are a lot more questions, but there are only two minutes left. <laughs> so, uh, I just want to share with you one thing that came out of my own fairly recent practice in the last year or two. And I, I may have mentioned this in the P1, when I uh, came for a Q&A during that time. But it really has had a, a really uh, a very in, big impact on my practice. So, uh, 
just like to share it with you. There's one, there's one statement or teaching in the text that comes up again and again and again. You know, and I, I must have read it a million times. And it's, just, it's a very simple statement. It just says, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. So this, I mean, this is just a statement, basically, of the truth of change. But when people really let it in in a profound way, as the stories go, sometimes people would just hear that phrase and get enlightened. You know, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Boom. I don't know if a boom actually comes with enlightenment, but... (laughs) (laughs) So I was just sitting, I was on a self-retreat, and I was sitting, and I was pretty into my practice. Things were going along really smoothly, and I was just in the flow, you know, in the flow of empty phenomena rolling on. And then this thought came, oh, whatever has the nature to rise will also pass away. But because it came right in the middle of a sitting, and a sitting where I was quite, I was quite in the process, it just had greater resonance because it wasn't like just an intellectual, oh yeah, whatever rises will pass away. It's like it really landed. You know? So it was almost like that line was coming up from within the process. You know? So it was very, it was very uh, powerful. Oh, whatever has the nature to rise will also pass away. But then my mind did something unexpected. Some there and whatever has the nature to rise will also pass away. Therefore, there's nothing to want. And I'm talking particularly with respect to the meditative process. Because whatever I might be wanting will also pass away. And it was interesting, it was similar to what happened with, you know, when I asked the question, what's the attitude? Well, therefore, there's nothing to want. I could feel the mind drop back from any kind of wanting at all. It was just... And there was one more little piece to this. Then I got really interested in, you could say, the quality of the mind or the nature of the mind free of any wanting. And it just, you know, maybe lasted a few moments. So it's not... But it was very dramatic. You know, oh, there's nothing to want. And then experiencing that mind. And what I realized, it, this is what became so vivid. This is really what our practice is about. What we're practicing is not wanting. But I know from myself and from working with thousands of yogis, it's so easy in our practice to get caught up in meditative wanting. You know, we want something, (laughs) you know, whatever it may be. But this end of wanting is precisely the third noble truth. You know, when the Buddha talked about the truth of, of dukkha and the cause of dukkha, which is craving or wanting, and the end of dukkha is the end of craving, and then there's the whole path. So, if we can remind ourselves, right in the midst of our practice, as we're practicing, there's nothing to want, then everything keeps going on. It's not like... Things are happening, but there's no entanglement. We're not being caught by the wanting and then all the actions which then proceed from the wanting. 
So what I do now, very often, you know, when I'm sitting or at any time, sometimes I'll just, that phrase will come, oh, there's nothing to want. And it's always a moment of peace. So I just like to highlight the very essence of the practice. This is the practice of freedom. It's not the practice of simply developing another conditioned state, however wholesome that state may be. And there are a lot. I mean, the Buddha talked about developing different qualities. All of that's fine, and we can develop them all, and they're, they're all part of the path. But can we do that from a place of understanding rather than from a place of wanting? Do you see the difference? And it just is tremendously, I find it tremendously uh, inspiring to realize that we can really touch the depth of what the Buddha taught even if it's just for a few moments at a time. You know, the one thing is going to come back and we'll get caught again and again. But this gives us a real taste of a possibility. Gives us a real taste of freedom. (laughs) Go get him. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.